The people of Philadelphia have been talking about issues around racism in the LGBTQ community for decades. It's been documented, for God's sakes, for over 30 years. Discriminatory practices in our, in our bars, so discriminatory dress code policies, white folks only having to show one form of ID where people of color ask for multiple forms, and of course a lack of representation in our organizations and our leadership and in our spaces. And unfortunately those challenges persist. Queer Public is a podcast about real-life queer life, and in each episode, asks a question about queer identity, queer politics, and our queer culture. Today we ask, how do we create queer spaces that affirm and center Black and brown people of color? Today's episode is called The Gayberhood. I'm your host, Erin McGregor. We're taking a walk through the streets between Chestnut and Pine, Broad and 11th, through the neighborhood's nightclubs and parties, and into City Hall. Philadelphia is one of three cities in the U.S. to have an LGBT affairs branch of the mayor's office. The other two are in Santa Clara, California, and Union County, New Jersey, mandated to address the issues facing local queer residents. I met up with our representative to the city, Amber Hikes, at Philadelphia's City Hall, literally located in the city center. It overlooks Broad Street, and running right through it is the Broad Street subway line, which runs north and south underneath City Hall. You'll hear some of that subway noise throughout the story. Oh, God. My name is Amber Hikes. I am the executive director of the Mayor's Office of LGBT Affairs for the city of Philadelphia. I actually came to Philadelphia to go to grad school at Penn in 2006. I was fortunate to start kind of interning with the Attic Youth Center. Uh, so kind of during the day, I was working with LGBTQ youth. And then at night, I was finding ways to organize with the Philadelphia Dyke March, kind of finding community wherever I could. Right after I graduated from Penn, I started an event production company. It's called Stimulus Productions, and we hosted nightlife events for queer folks in the city. It started out as kind of like a lesbian nightlife production company, but we were told pretty early on that that terminology was um, exclusive for our trans siblings. So we broadened that, and that company turns 10 uh, this year. Queer nightlife is often where queer community is the most visible and participated in. In Philly, the neighborhood has often been criticized as a place comfortable to white community members like myself, and where black and brown members have struggled to feel welcome or safe. According to the 2016 U.S. Census, Philadelphia is 44% black, 14% Latino or Hispanic, and 8% Asian. But if you walked through the neighborhood, you'd never know that. There were sisters at the only lesbian bar at the time. Folks who identified as lesbian felt comfortable in that space. I can speak from my experience and the experiences of uh, women of color who were in that space. There were just a lot of implicit and explicit signs that that particular space wasn't really for them and certainly trans folks as well, I heard a lot of that. People pick up on that over the years. It's in the details. 
sisters wouldn't serve certain types of liquor or play certain types of music. And so there was just this call to have something that was a space of our own. And so my business partner and I came together. She was a white woman from New Jersey with like a mohawk. And I was, you know, a black girl from Atlanta that was living in Philadelphia for a few years with braids. And we had no idea what we were doing. Neither one of us had ever thrown any nightlife events at all. We just wanted to provide something else for the community. It really just came down to supply and demand. We, we joked about trying to get like 20 people to an event, but 50 people showed up to the first one, 150 people showed up to the second one, and by the sixth month end, we had 600 people that were coming consistently. And that, that continued for, you know, for years. It was at the very beginning of people using social media for pictures and promotion, so we were one of the first parties to have photographers. This was the party where you got dressed, right? You got your you got your little outfit on, you got your heels, and for like black women, they would you know straighten their hair, they would press their hair because they were going to be photographed, they were going to be cute, right? But they weren't necessarily dancing their butts off, they weren't sweating their hair out, right? They were there to be to be seen, and when the parties got so large and became such a scene themselves, we really longed for something that was like how we started, that felt more grassroots, that felt more like a basement party, that felt like something where you could come in your sneakers and sweat your hair out. And so I created this party that's called Back to Basics, and that's literally what it was, just kind of a no frills, you know, five bucks to get in, uh, DJs are gonna keep it pumping, like kind of dimly lit, maybe there's a photographer, maybe there's not, but you're here just to have a really good time. To understand why Amber needed to create new queer spaces, we need to go back to Philly's original lesbian mainstay, Sisters. Whatever you thought about Sisters, right, whether it was a space you patronized or not, it was really nice to have a space for folks. I mean, it, it didn't serve a particular purpose for me, but it did for a lot of folks. And so I think losing that space in, in the neighborhood was really tough for folks, especially at the time people were really hoping that was going to remain a queer space. Sisters was gay-owned and lesbian-run, so it was not immune to the phenomenon of dying lesbian bars like Le Drugstore in Montreal and the Lexington in San Francisco. Sisters struggled. One day, people showed up to signs on the door. Sisters was closed for business. I was approached by some other folks that wanted to buy the space, and they said, you know, we really want to do everything we can to make this remain a queer space and, if possible, a space that's really safe for queer women, um, queer women and trans folks specifically, do you want to go in on it? And I said, yeah, I, I have no desire to own a bar <laughs> or manage a bar, but I've got some liquidity and I can help secure this for the community. I had a lot of ideas about the daily operations and, in fact, I was the only business partner that was actually in nightlife at the time, but the primary motivation was just to be able to hold a bar that was still ours in the community. This was at a time where we were just seeing like rapid gentrification in, in the neighborhood, and of course that has continued at an even quicker pace. But it was what felt like the beginnings of it, at least for us. So there were a handful of us. Everybody is, uh, you know, identified as a queer woman or a lesbian. Two of them are white women. One was a Latina woman that were going to buy this space, had put in an offer. The offer was above asking. And it was an offer that was well above what the place was worth. Looked like the, the negotiations were going well. I was not a part of the first two walkthroughs. 
I showed up for the third walkthrough because we were about to do this deal. Um, conversation went really well. You know, we were talking to the owner about things we had in mind for the space and how that was going to go. Everything was great and friendly. We ended the meeting and I left. The two white women stayed behind and they overheard the owner at the time saying, either I'm not going to sell this place to uh, a colored person or I don't want this to turn into a colored bar, something like that. The offer was rejected. It was then sold to someone else for well below what we were um, offering. And it is, uh, it's a really great bar in the, in the city, but it is uh, certainly not a queer bar. I don't think I've ever really processed that. Um, hmm. I'm trying to remember the timeline of when I found out that that comment was said. I know I wasn't told immediately. I think my business partners, they didn't want to traumatize me. And if I can pull myself kind of out of that experience, so if I were somewhere and somebody said something to me, or I overheard something that was transphobic about a person that I knew, would I tell that person that people were saying things that were transphobic? I don't know. I would have to think about the purpose of saying that, to tell someone that there were these things that were being said about them. So I can understand the decision to not tell me, because what benefit is that? Especially if we were going to take over this space anyway, we were going to make it, you know, kind of progressive and radical and queer as hell, then why? Why would someone tell me? But after we lost the deal, I was made aware that it might have been part of why. And it wasn't anything like, you know, this was the problem is that you were black. You know, you were discriminated against. Like, we were discriminated against um, because of this. And that was the part that was devastating. Because, again, I didn't ever want to own a bar. That was the part that was hurtful, and especially when it's coming from inside of your community. Uh, for white folks that know the story, they're like, oh, God, I, you know, I can't imagine and that. So difficult. It's like, well, first of all, I'm a queer black woman who grew up in the American South. So let's be very clear. This is not the first time anybody said anything problematic or it wasn't even the most problematic thing that probably happened that week, frankly. Um, so it didn't it didn't really change my experience at all. It really just confirmed previous experiences that I had had. I will say someone saying something discriminatory or racist or biased to you is, however, a different experience than someone literally being able to block your access to a space, especially when, by the grace of God, you have enough resources to be able to get that access and for someone to block that access just based on who you are. That was different. Flash forward, a few years pass. Amber is working in nonprofit in Los Angeles. She and her business partner disband the stimulus parties, and they're looking to get out of nightlife. Amber is still keeping tabs on life in Philadelphia. She's back and forth a lot. And then in 2016, a video was leaked of a white bar owner talking about his black patrons. Trigger warning here, Amber is about to describe the racist content of the video. Skip ahead a couple seconds if you'd rather practice self-care. Um, so the video was released of the owner of Eye Candy saying the N-word over and over again. The video gets out and people are pissed. Protests break out outside of the bar. The city doesn't know how to handle it. The Office of LGBT Affairs doesn't know how to handle it. I got a call right after the new year in 2017 asking if I'd be interested in 
coming to run the Philadelphia Office of LGBT Affairs. And there was nothing that had um, prepared me for such an, such an offer. I had no idea something like that was coming. I obviously knew about the challenges that people were experiencing in the city. I knew about the challenges that I had experienced in the city. And so I, I did come back and had a lot of thoughts around what we needed to do to address this issue. As you can imagine, it's very difficult to accept a job where the top thing on your list is solve racism. That video, though, absolutely was kind of the, the smoking gun. And it really confirmed what LGBTQ people of color have been saying for a very long time. But you know how racism works in this country, you know how white supremacy works. Like, white folks have to see this. There's nothing under the N-word that, that a lot of white folks can see as actual um, discrimination um, or white supremacy. But, but this was that, so fine. Um, and so folks saw that and said, okay, well... Maybe there is a problem, but even some folks, you know, gaslit folks and said maybe it's not a, it's not a widespread problem. It's just a problem with this guy, um, or he was upset at the time, um, which was really which was really frustrating for so many of us. There was a lot that happened in the community: boycotts, protests, community conversations, um, hearings. There was uh, leadership changes. I mean, it was a time of tremendous unrest in the community. And the eye candy video is, is part of the narrative, right? But it's not all of the narrative. It's not even close to all of the narrative. These challenges have been highlighted, protested for decades in this city. Um, this was kind of the recent response to this very obvious kind of blatant act of racism and discrimination, but the community was just on fire and people were really in opposing corners. The biggest challenge was just getting people into the room. People had been shouting at each other for so long on the internet that they didn't even want to come from behind their computers or behind their picket lines and sit down and have a conversation about it. I'll be clear, it depends on the, the grievance, right? It depends on the offense. If really sitting down and having a conversation is the best way to go. I don't believe that someone saying the N-word over and over again and laughing about it when talking about patrons is a person who has an implicit bias that can be talked about. That's a different thing. But there are degrees, right? of racism, degrees of white supremacy, there's degrees of prejudice and bias. And I do think by and large conversation is, is the way to go, which is why we created a community conversation initiative. The whole idea was to get people kind of from behind those computer screens and into the rooms with, um, with their fellow community members. But I think depending on what the offense is, having conversations, and especially if you're a person that holds a lot of privilege, just listening to what folks who are more marginalized have to say, I do think that that's how we get things done. I say often that if we're talking specifically about white folks, they not only benefit from racism, but they just don't experience it. So it is often hard for them to understand what that looks like and what that feels like because it's not something they experience. But if they're not willing to shut up and listen and believe people who are telling you what their lived experience is, then we can't dismantle it. I'm happy to say that a lot of those fires have been put out. I said before the community was on fire, it's smoldering now. <laughs> We're always kind of ready for things to, to catch on fire again. Hi, 
Eventually, the owner of iCandy released an apology video, and there was an initiative to bring business back to the bar. But it was all too late. The community had spoken. For me, and I, you know, I speak personally in this context and not as a government official, and I think it's more of an individual decision of what people do with their time, with their money, with their resources, especially in a capitalist society. So the biggest challenge with forgiving um, the owner of eye candy or forgiving that space or continue to patronize that space is that it wasn't a rogue bartender. It wasn't a rogue bar back. It wasn't a racist manager. It was the owner. So anything you do in that space, anything that man profits off of, right? And I would believe that if it were anybody else other than the owner and that it occurred, that person probably would have been fired. People let their opinions be heard with their with their pocket, with their resources, and I think that's how it should go. I'm a person that is not particularly a, a capitalist person. I'm pretty anti-capitalist myself, but if there's something capitalism is good for, it's, it's that. In a capitalist society, change can be really hard, but it's not impossible. We do have power. We can protest the things that are discriminatory and cause harm. We can also support the things that affirm marginalized voices. Some of those things are actions, some are words, and some are symbols. This was a historic time in our community's history. So it was important to mark something with a symbol. And so I received a call from a tyranny ad agency and a person who's a friend now, Terry Gerbeck, um, had me come down and said, you know, we think we have something that could help. And we think it may kind of address some of the things you're talking about. And so they had this really dope presentation. And I sat there and they unveiled this flag. I cried. I teared up. I'm pretty open about the fact that I, that I teared up. It was really like transformative. It's such a simple design, but it resonated like immediately. People need symbols, right? You could talk about this stuff to your blue in the face, but for a lot of folks, symbols are, are what matters. It really helps kind of mobilize the message. Probably back to the commission, uh, took it to the mayor, obviously, took it to members of city council, and folks were just through the roof. So the idea was to go ahead and raise it for pride. And we did, with a lot of fanfare and a lot of celebration. Uh, but we raised it on a Thursday, and by Friday it went national. Overwhelmingly, the response was so positive. Like, people were thrilled. God, it's about time. Good gracious, why did this take so long? Or this, this makes sense? Like, I didn't, I didn't know why the sixth right rainbow flag didn't completely resonate with me, but this, this feels like it reflects my experience. This is something I can identify with. It's a beautiful blessing, so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. The More Color, More Pride flag has been adopted all over the world, from the UK to Australia, South Africa, and a huge list of American cities. And in New York City, Lena Waithe even wore it as a cape on the red carpet at the Met Gala in 2018. The flag is everywhere. But of course, you know, the way white supremacy works, we also had a fair amount of backlash as well. It created a conversation that is long overdue. And for that, I am profoundly grateful. But, I, you know, the backlash, like, it was, like, personally hurtful. The death threats, the slurs, like, all of that was personally hurtful, um, especially because it came from members of our own community. 
So let's be honest about who has a problem with the more color, more pride flag. It's members of the community who benefit the most from white supremacy and from the whitewashing of queer movements. It's white members of the gay community who become enraged with the redesign and attack Amber with racial slurs and death threats. But people for whom the flag resonates are finding new ways to plant it. Spaces and attitudes are shifting and change is happening. The flag arrives at one of the most controversial spaces in the gayborhood. I think it's poetic, right? As like a former English major, I feel like you couldn't write you couldn't write a um, more compelling kind of interesting story. So, Eye Candy was bought by the owner of Taboo, and Taboo that space. I think you can really ask anybody if you're talking about the neighborhood. There really isn't a better space for queer people of color, for trans folks, for folks who exist on the margins. Yeah, Taboo was really that space. The neighborhood has a profound <laughs> amount of challenges. Um, for so many different communities. But Taboo was kind of, if, if you were going to be in the neighborhood, that was the space that people felt most comfortable in, um, at least all those different identities felt most comfortable in. And so it is frankly poetic that that bar is the bar that bought this old uh, eye candy space and has been able to bring that kind of inclusive, progressive energy into a space that really caused so much trauma and uh, and pain to so many members of our community. I now host events that are in that space because I was hosting, obviously, events in the old Taboo. And we, we sage that space pretty regularly <laughs> whenever we get an opportunity to. What's also very cool about this space is that the first floor has the More Color, More Pride flag on the wall. It's this like brilliant kind of symbolic reminder of how far we've come and where we're going. Really, um, especially when you think about the you know the bit of backlash we got for the flag for a place like Taboo to say not only we're we going to fly it outside, which they also do that, but we are going to paint this wall in this color to be very clear and intentional as soon as you get in the door about what we stand for and who we're in solidarity with. And there's something that's really remarkable um, and beautiful about that. Take my hand, take my A lot of work goes into building queer spaces that affirm the identities of the most marginalized people in the community. And that work is hard and thankless. When we are able, supporting those spaces by attending events and showing up and even just talking to each other is how to keep those spaces sacred. And if you're a person who holds a lot of privilege, ask spaces who can do better to do better. This episode was produced by me, Erin McGregor. Editing and sound design by Ariana Martinez. Music supervision by Homoground host and creator, Lynn Casper. We heard music from Supernova, El DeLuna, and Philly's own Shy to Buzzard. Special thanks to our editorial board, Sin Pim, who gave us great feedback about how to make this episode better, and to the Office of LGBTQ Affairs in Philadelphia. To support Queer Public and the people who make it, please visit patreon.com slash queerpublic 
For as little as $1, you become a part of our family and get access to our secret behind the scenes Instagram account, receive treasures in the mail, and so much more. Become a patron today. Visit queerpublic.org to sign up for our mailing list and for transcripts of the show. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Queer Public. We invite you to join the conversation. Next time on Queer Public. I always felt like a lesbian, but knew that I was not a lesbian. Like, I remember being really young and reading, like, Alison Bechdel's stuff, and I was like, this is my world. Like, I found a complete collection of dykes to watch out for, and I read the entire thing. And I was like, holy shit, this is where I belong. And so it's funny to me, um, now that I live in, like, West Philly, and I, like, have hairy armpits, and I am a professional cuddlist, and, like, there's communal houses, and I'm like, oh my god, this is where I thought I should be, and here I am, um, except I'm, I'm not a dyke to watch out for. I'm your host, Erin McGregor. Thanks for listening.